Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm yet another Platt. <laughs> Today we'll be reading two passages. Our first is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, only one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God, Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 30 to 34 from the message. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing now, and don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Thank you. I'm not a plet. I was going to say, but I'm glad to know one or three. Uh, would love to be one. Uh, welcome. Welcome to WDBC. Welcome uh, for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, maybe you're nestled into uh, your lounge or you're, you got a cup of cocoa or maybe you're hurrying somewhere. We want to welcome you as well for joining us. Uh, but it's really great to see those of you who are here. Thank you for uh, honoring God and honoring one another with your presence here this morning um, as we gather as his church. Uh, we are working through a series on pain and the subtitle is Hope and Healing that comes uh, for us through our pain. just want to overview kind of what we're going to be looking at in these six weeks before we get into the, the content today. Uh, last week we looked at regret or painful decisions. Today we're looking at painful finances, what it means to be deprived. Uh, next week, Pastor Eddie's going to take us through what it means to be infirm or to have painful bodies. 
Pastor Chris will be preaching on painful losses and bereavement. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I'm back for uh, painful relationships and, and painful sins. Uh, there's more types of pain than this, but uh, we're working through Matthew Kim's book. I think I called him Michael last week. Matthew Kim's book, uh, Preaching Through People in Pain. Um, and uh, I want to just take a moment to speak about the nature of pain and, and kind of why we're focusing on this. I didn't get to touch on this last week, but uh, some things have kind of come, come out from this. One is that pain is universal. Uh, everyone has pain in some way or in some, some level. Um, pain is understood in the context of God's word. God is our creator and our maker. And so it's fully natural to expect that we can understand our pain as we come to his word. Even if we don't fully understand why or get all of our questions asked, we can help see it how God sees it. Um, thirdly, and this is particularly relevant for today, but pain has a way of shaping communities of people. There are some pains which are not individual, but they're corporate. Now, for those of you who were here around uh, the year 2000, uh, you'll know that there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And there were some financial decisions that were made leading up to that that has put this community of people in a state of pain for a, for a long period of time. And so it's a good example for us to recognize that pain can impact a community. And certainly, if you look around the world, there's plenty of communities being impacted, generations being impacted by the pain that they're going through. Um, we need to talk about pain because God pr promises comfort and, and, and soothing for that. Uh, pain is to be shared, and ultimately, pain is transforming us, either for good or for evil. Pain is a powerful, powerful experience and something that can be hallowed unto the Lord. Uh, our goal is to plow through that, all right, um, uh, forgive the alliteration, uh, but the goal of this, this, this six weeks is to prepare for the pain that we're going to endure, to lower our expectations for ourselves, this is really, really critical. Um, we want to oppose entitlement as well as ingratitude. These are two, these are two normal responses when we, when we encounter pain. One is to say, I'm entitled to not have to go through this, and the other is to, is to just forget any blessing and any good. Uh, we want to understand the silent hurts of God's family. Again, if pain is a universal experience, we look around this room, I'm sure there's a number of you who are currently actively, maybe even this morning, either experiencing or processing acute pain in your life. It's shaping your thinking, it's shaping your decision-making, it's shaping your sleep, your health, all sorts of things going on right now because of your pain. Uh, we wanna glorify God, the God who is greater than our pain. That's part of why we're spending time in his word is we wanna get a picture of a God who's bigger than all of this. And he is bigger than this. And that's not to dismiss our experience, but to say there is something beyond, someone greater than our experience. Ultimately with the goal that we would hallow or, or set apart as holy the hurt that we have. And the Bible calls this part of worship lament. And so we can lament these things together. So today, as we uh, look for hope and healing for our finances, uh, we're tapping into this experience of pain as being deprived of not having something. And so right now, I invite you to pray with me as we open uh, this message in God's word together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today and we ask that your Holy Spirit would encourage us through the scriptures 
that we might discover what you're saying to us as a feeble and a weak people, a people who are dependent on you. Lord, in a world that wants to tell us that we're enough, we confess this morning that we're not enough and that we need you. Jesus, you told us that you are the vine and we are the branches and that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Jesus, would you continue to nourish and strengthen us that we might bear fruit for your glory today. Amen. Painful finances. Uh, This is a a topic that makes most people cringe, but it's actually a topic that it comes up so much in the Bible. And I would say this is a day to grab a Bible from the back if you don't have one or to pull out a smartphone. And if you, we were playing Bible bingo, we joked about this this morning. This is a day to play like Bible bingo and like pull out all the verses that might, we might touch on about money, right? Because the Bible has so much to say about money and our possessions. Um, Given the crisis that we're in right now, the crisis that many of you are facing with rising interest rates and the impact that that's had on your budget, the impact that that's had on on your work life, the the way of life, doing the things you wanna do, not being able to do the things you need to do, um, I think it's particularly relevant for many right now. Matthew Kim, uh, in his introduction, he speaks of a number of different ways we can experience pain from our lack, right? And I want to just take a moment to, to highlight this because, uh, and maybe I've been watching too much Loki, but, but the image that's in my head is that, is that there's all these types of pain that can come from finances, like, like, um, like thread on a loom, right? And, and, and it's all being kind of woven in, and it all kind of has a touch point, and we'll come to that in Christ, but we need to recognize that pain from finances can first come from a lot of different places, okay? Uh, Number one, and this is probably what immediately comes to mind, there's a pain of poverty. A pain of poverty is lacking what we need to survive. I don't want to be rude, but I don't think many of us are experiencing this particular pain right now. Maybe you are, and if you are, I apologize. But by this, I'm thinking of the person who hasn't eaten in a few days who is scrounging through scraps to, to try to find enough to make a meal. I'm thinking of the person who has damaged their shoes and can't buy another pair, can't find another pair. I'm thinking of a person who does not have shelter, clean water, clothing, the ability to, to bathe themselves, these sorts of things. Um, there are people in the world who are experiencing this. And we need to recognize that. And I think we need to be careful when we talk about pain from finances to be careful not to describe in the West our situation in terms of poverty, true poverty, particularly in Australia. I think in Australia, because one of the great reasons so many people want to be here is because we have an amazing social network, social safety net. The government provides so much to people to keep them from entering into true poverty. Doesn't mean there aren't people who are in true poverty here, there are, but the government does a lot here to do that. But I think something that we can relate to a lot is the pain of worry for our lack. Now this is the fear that we, what we have won't be enough. 
And that is something that I think many of us can acutely experience. Now, that's not to say whether, you know, <laughs> your fear is rational or not. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it up to the Lord to, to, to convict you or not convict you whether you need to be worried about your finances right now. But this is a pain that comes from thinking about the future and thinking about what's next. It's the worries of this life that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. Uh, what the message was referring to in Matthew chapter 6. Thirdly, there's a pain that comes from finances that's centered around identity. And, and this is kind of that next layer down. The pain of identity here is the experience that people have of having a lowered status because of what they don't have. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you can tell people, you know, at, at work or school, don't treat you as nice as, as, as the person who, you know, drives the fancy car or, you know, has, has the, the name brand shirts or the name brand shoes. You know, if you're a student or you're a young person, you know, maybe you, you, you've watched how, how the popular people seem to be the one that, that have, you know, the nice homes and they have all the toys and, and everyone wants to be their friend and you realize no one wants to be my friend. There's a pain that comes from having a lower status because you don't have what other people have. James talks about this in his epistle where he says that when you go into the church meeting and if you, you know, rub shoulders and you buddy up with the person who's rich, but you neglect the person who's there, you know, tattered and doesn't really have much to offer you, he called, James calls you a hypocrite. We could go on. Fourth, there's a pain of, of envy. Now, unlike identity, which tends to, the, the pain of, of financial identity tends to be uh, centered around shame, envy is, is really, it's a pain of longing. It's, it, it's a pain of not having what you want. <laughs> but I want that third cookie. But I really want to be able to buy the bigger screen TV than I have. But I really wish I could live in that suburb and not this suburb. But I really want, and envy here is that, is that pain that comes from our desires reigning over us. And the last one I want to just point out here is we can experience pain from this idea of scarcity. And this is universal because after the fall, when God kicked us out of the garden, we toil in a cursed land. <laughs> we toil ground that is cursed. God said, by the sweat of your brow, he said to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will produce fruit, right? You'll reap a harvest. Yes, you will get provision from the creation, but it's going to come with toil. And so there's this principle called scarcity, which is to say that we have to work for what we get. And there's a bondage to that. And if you don't think, you, you know, you're in bondage to this, I just want to ask you how much of your time and energy and how much of your life has been determined by reaping something from your work? I bet you most of us could say that over 75% of our time is devoted, our decisions, our resources, everything is all centered around what we're going to take out of the ground. In other words, what we're going to get from our work. It determines where we live. It determines who we associate with. It determines how we dress. It determines the, you know, how we parent our, our, our children. It determines the relationships we get, we, we get into. So much is because we 
recognize that if we don't work to get something out of life, we're going to be stuck. And the Bible says there's a bondage there to that. All of us are bound to that. So this pain we experience, it can come from, it can come when our financial situation deprives us of sustenance, when our financial situation deprives us of peace, of dignity, of satisfaction, and ultimately when it deprives us of freedom. The big question I want to ask today is how much do we need to be content? How much do we need to be content? That's a challenging question. (laughs) I love in Matthew Kim's book, he says, if we all put our masks down for a second and we're honest with with one another, we'd say, we all want a little more money, don't we? We're all sort of, so we're all sort of hoping we just have a little more money. A um, couple uh, amusing quotes. Yogi Berra, you know, that, that, uh, that great philosopher. Uh, he, and I know this isn't your currency. His quote, you know, a, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Now, if you're not into American currency, a nickel's worth five cents, a dime's worth 10 cents. Right? His point is, there, there, there's, there's always... What we have never seems to be enough. Or in the words of uh, Montgomery Burns from The Simpsons, he said, I trade it all for a little more. <laughs> right? which, is a, which is a take on the, the Rockefeller quote. When they, when they found John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men of his time, and they said, how much money do you need, Mr. Rockefeller? He said, just one dollar more. I just want one dollar more. I came across this term which I thought was a joke. Affluenza. Have you heard of this? This is a real word. It's a real word. It's in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and you know, one of its one of its meanings refers to an extreme materialism and consumerism associated with the pursuit of wealth and success, and resulting in a life of chronic debt. Excuse me, chronic dissatisfaction, debt, overwork, stress, and impaired relationships. It's a sickness that you never have enough. It's a sickness of affluence. Affluenza, what a great great term. I don't think we have to look too far to see this in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, dare I say, even in us. So, how are we going to answer this question, how much is enough? Um, I really struggled with how do we, you know, how do you try to encapsulate a theology of money uh, in, in, in one sermon that's centered around pain? But I think if we're going to sort of begin to bring relief to these various aspects of financial pain, we need to be really clear about three things. We need to be clear about what is God's. We need to be clear about what is ours. And we need to be clear about what is possible. What is God's, what is ours, and what is possible? Now, in each of these sort of headings, I'm going to be looking at an element of Jesus' teaching. But we're going to focus mostly on that second section as we uh, jump into this. In Mark chapter 12, we read this story. Uh, 
some of the Pharisees and Herodians, they, they are sent to trip up Jesus in his words. And they come to him saying, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Gee, they're buttering him up real nice. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, you need to realize the Pharisees and the Herodians have an agenda. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And they realize that he's wildly popular. And so they can't get him on his popularity. And like Daniel, they can't get Jesus on his integrity. So they're going to get him on money. And so they put him, they try to pin him down on a money question about his, uh, in, in a very toxic political climate. So the Jews had to pay taxes to the Romans to live in God's promised land. It was a great source of pain to the Jews. And if you were a zealous Jew and you believed that God gave you that land, you, you know, you'd say, why are we having to give this money to them? To do that, you, it, it, would, it would fly in the face of the promises of God. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, well, don't pay your taxes, well, then the Romans have every reason right now to, to tie him up. But the presumption behind their question is, nobody wants to pay taxes. That's the, that's the base presumption of this whole trap, is that nobody likes letting go of their money. Listen to what Jesus does. He says, they say, should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That was their, their currency. Jesus looks at the denarius. They brought the coin. He asked, he asked them, this is now Jesus, whose image is this? In other words, who's on the coin? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. He cut right through the trap, and they were amazed at him. Now, I don't know if they were amazed just because they, he resolved their conundrum, or if they were amazed because he was just seemed to not care and be ready to say, hey, give them the money. It doesn't matter. But in this little story, we have a hint, I think, at a, towards a theology of money, all right? Understanding God's view. So, sorry, the, the slide corrupted the first text. I don't, I don't know what Mon Ona lot is. I meant to say Jesus teaches on money a lot, okay? I don't know why I did that, but I'd already loaded the slides, and I wasn't going to go back and change it. But Jesus teaches on money a lot, okay? That's what that's meant to say. Um, and what, some things that just come out of this, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus promises that, he says, ask God, he provides for your needs. We read that in Matthew 6 as well uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus said you can't serve God and money. That means, you know, money can't be an idol. God's not going to accept that. Tim Keller's developed a, 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 a great little framework on this called Counterfeit Gods, and, and he says money is effectively the currency of idolatry for many of us, right? Money is what we use to facilitate the worship of things that are not God, the worship of things that are other than God. Why does God get so upset about idolatry in the Old Testament? It's not just because 
It's not simply because they're recognizing the God status of a thing that's not God, but they're also in the process devoting all the resources, all the gifts, all the things that he's given to them. They're taking their sacrifices to these unholy places. They're offering incense in these, to, to these things that are not God, right? They're divesting themselves of the things God has given them to worship a thing that is not God. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in one way, that's descriptive. Because that means that, you know, you can sort of follow the money to see the thing you love. But I think it's also a promise. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if you have set aside your money for the kingdom, in other words, you've let God reign over your finances, that's where your heart's going to be. It's going to be in the kingdom. But if the thing that governs your money is the kingdom of this earth, is the kingdom of this world, well, that's where your heart is. And ultimately, Jesus says, heavenly treasure is worth it. Now, I've given you a few principles. Uh, this is from Chuck Bentley. He's a, he's a guy with Crown Financial Ministries. Uh, that's not an endorsement. I'm just giving credit where it is, okay? Uh, you can look it up for yourself, decide whether you, uh, you know, that, that ministry would be helpful to you. Um, but some biblical principles, he says, God owns it all, right? We bear God's image, which means we steward his resources, right? Everything will be returned to him. We cannot take it with us. In the words of John Piper, there's no U-Hauls behind a hearse. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no moving van behind, <laughs> behind the thing that takes your body to the cemetery, right? We're not like the Egyptians where we throw all our goods and accoutrements in, in a cave thinking that we're going we're gonna to take them with us when we go, right? And ultimately, the first fruits are his. These are some biblical principles in understanding what is God's. He owns everything, really. But I want to jump now to talk about what is, what is and what isn't ours. We've seen what's God, what is and what isn't ours. And there's two texts here that, that are the primary focus. Um, and I'm actually going to start with the second one and come back to the first one. So Philippians is going to give us a path to contentment. Uh, but 1 Timothy 6 verses 5 to 10 gives us two pictures to avoid covetousness, all right? You might not use the word covetous a lot, but it means, it means to want something that's not yours. Desi the, the desire to acquire. 1 Timothy 6 from verse, uh, we'll actually start in verse 2. Uh, Paul is writing to his associate, to his son in the faith, um, about how he's supposed to conduct himself among God's people as he tries to provide some leadership in Ephesus. He says, those who have believing masters should, show them res uh, should not show them disrespect. Oops. I don't know. Is this is the right? Yep. I don't know if it loaded the right text. We'll jump down to four and five. Uh, he's talking about these people who have an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words that result in strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, okay? These people, they're, they're, in their communication, there's a lot of just, just grist, just, just a gristle. There's just a lot of like tension that comes, right? And he's going to get to the heart of it. Uh, this constant friction between people of a corrupt mind, they've been robbed of the truth who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So who he has in mind here is these certain people in the church who have seen their, their piety, their, their godliness, as a way to profit financially. 
And if you want to know how to like smell out a false teacher, this is what a great way. Okay? Follow the money. Paul says, these people come into your church in Ephesus, and he says, they're sitting there and they're preaching and they're teaching, they're getting everybody all riled up. He said, but the reality is, they're trying to use religion to make a profit. They're using the gospel for their gain. But look at the picture, he says. They've been robbed of the truth. What a sad picture. Here's these, here's these leaders who've come into the church, and it's like they've... Yes, they, they got the treasure of Christ, right? They understood the gospel, they received it, they believed it, and, and then they left the treasure at home and they went out into the world seeking financial gain. And God says, while they were in process of looking to gain the world, someone has come and he's stolen the truth right out from under them. What a terrible picture. They've been robbed. But it goes on. He gives the positive. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Are you listening to what he says? He's broadening it out now beyond these false teachers. And he's saying anybody who sets the purpose of their life as to get rich, if that's, the, if that's the trajectory of your life, if that's the destination that you and I are going for, it's a profit. It's a temptation and a trap. Are these desires, not only are they foolish, but they're harmful, it will lead to our ruin and destruction. And in case that wasn't graphic enough, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You get a host of just wicked behavior. Paul says it's growing out of one bush. Love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. <laughs> We've toned it down. <laughs> Literally, it says they've impaled themselves. Which is a very graphic image. It's as if God said, if you, if you leave the truth, if you leave the, if you leave the realm of my kingdom and you go off chasing the treasures of the world, there's this fence out there. And you're going to run straight into barbed wire. You're, you're going to run, you're going to be like the war in the old days where they set up those, you know, they set up those big spears to just impale the horses. It's like, that's what you're doing, Paul says. So we got to be careful. The church in the West, we need to wake up. Because this is the Kool-Aid that the world will sell you, will hand out to you for free. You will be happier. You will be satisfied. All you need is more, 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 more. And in one way, I get it. I get it. Because money is one of the quickest avenues to comfort. We've been talking about pain. Everyone's pain has pain on, on a variety of levels. It's not all the same pain, but everyone experiences pain. But money is one of the things in this life that can get you a comfort fix quickly. And it comes in all varieties of forms. I'm not just talking retail therapy. I'm talking about having a whole stack of money in a bank account so you can feel good about your long-term security. 
I'm talking about being able to rub shoulders, being able to have great experiences, being able to, you know, build up your reputation, being able to access good lawyers and good doctors and all this stuff. People use money to bring comfort to themselves. It's one of the quickest avenues. But the gospel says there's a better way. There's a better way. So we got to watch out for this. So we're going to talk a lot about pain in this series. And, and, and sometimes pain is, is, is not inflicted by you. It's inflicted by, by other people. But in this topic, for most of the West, a lot of our pain is self-inflicted. So what's the alternative? The alternative is uh, contentment. Now, Paul gives us a picture of contentment in Philippians 4, chapter, uh, uh, verses 10 to 20. What you need to know about this book is Paul is writing this from jail. And he's, he's made it to Rome. He's in prison. He's chained up. He's under house arrest. And he's at a point in his life where he's, he doesn't know if they're going to execute him or not. He's a death row inmate. So this letter is written by a death row inmate. And it starts with Paul saying, hey, you church in Philippi, I just want you to know how wonderful everything's turned out. <laughs> you laugh, but that's how it starts. I want you to know how great everything's going because look what God's doing by the fact that I'm in jail. And he goes on later in the letter to say, you know, I don't really know if I'm going to live or die. And if they gave me the choice, I'm actually not sure what I would pick. Because, you know, if I, if I die, I get to go be with the Lord. If I live, then I get to be of service to him. And as he ponders this question, he says, you know, I think, I actually think God's going to keep me around. Not because I'm the Apostle Paul and I can do so much good stuff in your church. He says, but because when you see me again, you're going to make so much of Jesus. You're going to think Jesus is, is incredible when, it, when I walk through the doors of your church. Then he goes on to tell them, you know, who they should look up to in their church, who they should watch out for in their church. He tells people to watch out. Watch out for those people in your church who, who, who put confidence in the flesh, who put confidence in, in the things that they do, and they forget about being confident in Christ. And as he's talking about their relationships and how they get on with one another, we read these great phrases, for, me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This from a man in prison. And the end of the letter, he wants to say thank you to them because they sent Epaphroditus. Good job, Noel. That was a hard word. They sent Epaphroditus with a gift. Now, Epaphroditus got sick in the middle of his stay, in the middle of his journey there. So Epaphroditus is now being sent back to the church in Philippi, likely with this letter. And Paul's now get to the end and he wants to thank them. But listen to his thank you note. And I wonder if you've ever written a thank you note like this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now he's careful here, verse 17. You know how somebody, Carson points this out in his book, you know how somebody, they're like so thankful that, that, that it gives you the impression that they want you to do it again? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me out on your boat. Man, I'm just so grateful. That was like the best day I've had in five years. Thank you. Thank you. You know, call them up the next day. What a great weekend we had on the boat, man. Wasn't that, wasn't that really good? Thank you, right? Yeah, there's a way of thanking people that, that can lead them to think, hey, can you do it again? Paul, Paul recognizes this, and, and he's not going to have them thinking that, right? 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. He brings God into the conversation, doesn't he? Verse 18, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, and pleasing to God. Paul views God in the midst of these giving and receiving, these transactions. Alec Matier in his commentary points out, that the first time this phrase is used, fragrant offering, do you, do you know what it is? It's after the flood, after the ark lands and Noah gets out and he builds an altar. And it's a fragrant offering. He takes the first fruits, he gives an offering to God. It's pleasing to him. And then he gives the promise, and my God will meet all your needs. Notice it doesn't say wants, it says needs. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I'm glad he says according to the riches of his glory. He doesn't say, my God will meet all your needs according to your needs. <laughs> As if to say, God would just meet our, just give us enough. I'm just going to give you enough for what you need, and then that's it. As I often can tell my kids, you know, I already gave you a sandwich. You don't need another one. I've met your need. <laughs> you don't need another packet of chips. You've already had one. <laughs> right? No, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. How rich is the glory of God? Inestimable. Which is why God's provision is abundant, isn't it? And so he can then say to God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 5 to 10 tells us to avoid tra this tragic robbery, right? When you're off chasing the things of the world, someone comes in and robs you of the truth. And no one wants to get impaled. <laughs> That's pretty painful. Chasing after riches is going to impale you. It's going to impale me if that's our destination. And again, I liked Motyer's outline here of the path to contentment. In this section of Philippians, we see the generosity of the church. You in yourself may not have all the resources needed right now. Your brother and sister might have more that they can help you with. You see, when you privatize kingdom living, when it's just about you and Jesus and it's not about the church, 
you are neglecting one of the greatest blessings and the, and the providing forces of God through the generosity of his church. Paul said, now that I've received your gift, I'm amply supplied. I have what I need. Look at Acts 4 and Acts 5. It wasn't as if when the church was born, God said, we really like how you do church, so I'm going to make sure everyone has the exact same amount of money. And I'm going to make sure that, that everyone has the same standard of living because you're just doing it really well. If we have a theology that God gives me money when I'm doing it well, it's too shallow of a theology. No, in the early church, it's like, oh, you look like you haven't had a good meal in a while. Why don't you come over to my house? I'm going to feed you. Oh, Barnabas looks around and says, I got this field over here. I don't need another field. What am I going to do with another field? I have the kingdom of God. I'm going to sell it. <gasps> sell land? <gasps> Barnabas, I'm going to sell it. And he comes into the church and he just puts it, puts it at, the, at the feet of the apostles. He says, look, this is, this is what I got for selling the land. Distribute it to those who need it. Right? The generosity of the church is meant to play a part in our path to contentment. If you're trying to live as a solo Christian, as a solo disciple, you're going to struggle without the church. You're going to be in need. And why do we, like, honestly... Why, when God says he's going to gift and build up the church, he's going to use the church to build the church, who am I to say to God, well, God, really, I'd prefer if it came from you. God, can you make the sandwich, please? God, I like the meal better when you serve it to me. In my private devotion time, and I don't know if I want, you know, Bob to make my sandwich. I know I'm hungry, but he uses crunchy peanut butter. You know, God, you know I like smooth, right? We, we, when we cut ourselves off from the church and from the kingdom, we're saying, God, I don't want you to provide in the ways that you said you would provide. I just want you to provide in my own private, miraculous way. Part of our path to contentment relies on the generosity of the church. The second part relies on the discipline of the Christian life. And by discipline here, I don't mean like caning and rotting. I mean the process of learning the process of growing and the process of maturing. When I was 21, I thought I needed a lot more sleep than I actually did. When I was 21, I thought that life consisted of a lot of things that now I realize it didn't, doesn't really, it's not really that important. I was learning. I'm still learning. We're learning together, right? This process of discipline is recognizing that there was, there's going to be some letting go. There's going to be some sacrifice. And there's going to be some time where I'm going to have to take Jesus at his word. When he's going to say, I don't want you to worry about tomorrow. I want you to worry about today. Do what I've got in front of you today. You know, but the child in me says, but when are we going to go to Luna Park? When are we going to take the holiday, God? I don't want to hear that you just want me to go to work today and be a witness for you. I want to know, am I going to have a retirement in 15 years? I want to know, am I going to survive whatever? I want to know, am I going to be able to make, make these ends meet? God's like, just get up. Be kind to your spouse. Spend time with me. 
do what I put in front of you today, right? But ultimately, our path to contentment falls in the trustworthiness of God, and, and this is the beauty of it, right? When you have Christ, when you see what God's given to you, as Paul said in, the, in Romans chapter 8, the one who gave us all things, like, like the one who gave us his son, would he not give us all things? Love this quote from Alec Macher. He says, the key, the key to all is in Christ Jesus. He mediates to us the benefits and blessings of God. More than that, he is himself the sum of all the blessings. For the preposition is not through but in. When Paul says, in him I can do all things. He's talking about. He is not a channel on which, along which the blessings flow, but a place in which they are deposited. Jesus isn't just your conduit. He's not your, he's not your vending machine to the blessings. He is the blessings. It is finally because of Christ that Paul is contented, and it is Christ whom he offers to us as the means and guarantee of our contentment. For Paul, the person who possesses Christ possesses all. Do you believe that? Is having Christ enough? Finally, just take a moment to think about what's possible. Uh, and here, I'm just going to introduce quickly a story. A man comes to Jesus. He ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's using money language here. How do I gain eternal life? How do I inherit it? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. You know the commands, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, shall not defraud, uh, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I can do the rules, Jesus. 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me painful conversation. And if we read this through the lens of our world, we would say, how can Jesus be loving him right now? That's not love. He's making him give up his possessions. This sounds like a scheme. <laughs> sounds like a trick. But the scripture says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he says, even though you have all this, you still lack something. You lack treasure in heaven. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Come on in, kids. He said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to inherit the kingdom of God. Notice wealth is an obstacle here. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with him. And so the last thing we need to be clear about, brothers and sisters, is what is possible. Notice Jesus' kingdom logic here. In the kingdom of God, it's entirely logical that we gain by losing. Let go of 
the things that hold you in this world, Jesus says, you will gain heaven. In the kingdom logic, we, we actually save by sharing. <laughs> we store up treasures in heaven by actually sharing with the poor. We inherit eternal life by forfeiting being the captain of our own soul. And so, Christian, I want you to imagine what is possible. It's possible to have joy beyond your circumstances. It's possible to have a security that, that, that is outside of your control, that you don't, you don't manage this fund, but you are entirely secure. It's possible to express generosity out of your poverty, to experience abundance out of lack. It's possible to be honored from your meekness. The big idea is this, all we'll ever need is found in Jesus. It sounds like religious speak, but it is the heart of God's truth that all we ever need is found in Jesus. So, to finish up, living the truth. Again, thank you to Matthew Kim <laughs> for the haves, for the have nots, and for the have sums. <laughs> For the haves, okay? Um, if God has blessed you with abundant provision and money is not a source of pain for you, you poverty is, is an idea for you. It's not a reality you've experienced. If that's, if that's you, if you're in this category, to live the truth, you need to heed the warning. Really heed the warning. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. And ask yourself, in, in the great altar of my heart, in that beautiful altar, is God the one being worshipped or am I serving my own prophet? If you're some of the haves, I would encourage you. God says to his people, he says, test me with my generosity. <laughs> If you think you can outgive me, just try. Right? I encourage you, if you have, let the kingdom of God be the encompassing vision of your resources, not your own comfort. For the have-nots, and for these, I'm talking about the true have-nots. I'm talking about the death row inmates. I'm talking to the people in absolute poverty. You need to hear the word of Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am not minimizing the fact that there are people who will die today because they don't have enough food and they don't have enough water. And that is tragic. But Jesus Christ is sovereign and he knows that if they have him, they will have eternity. And as meek and as overlooked as they may be, they will inherit the kingdom of God. For the have-sums. <laughs> For the have-sums. A few questions. A few questions for you. Which of the financial areas of pain do you most resonate with? Is it future-oriented? Is it identity-oriented? Is it, is it about envy and about wanting things that other people have? 
identify where in, where in your financial life the pain is coming from and let Jesus speak to that area. If it's about the future, we touched on this a little bit, he wants you to trust him today. If it's about, if it's about wanting things that other people have, listen to what the Bible says about, uh, about the sufficiency of Christ and learn to wean your flesh off of the things the world gives and wean it on to what the Spirit gives us in Christ. I'm running out of time, so I gotta cut it short, sorry. For the church, <laughs> you're saying short, what? For the church, for the church, um, we don't, we'll, we'll never know who needs help if we never talk about our need. <laughs> I know there's a lot of shame and you think, look, the things you don't talk about are money and, you know, religion. That's it's a bit rude. Can we just put aside, like, rude? Can we just put aside, like, polite manners? This is the church. This is a safe place, okay? If you have need, it's okay. You're not looked at as a lesser of a person. You may have made a very poor financial decision and you feel like you've screwed up and you're filled with shame. Can I just say, verbalize it. Let us know that the... The body of Christ needs to rally around one another, right? Let's not use the metrics that the world uses as we look to one another. I really like this picture, and I'll finish with this. <laughs> dandelions are mesmerizing, aren't they? Little dandelions, they, 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 uh, you see them in the field, and you're like, whoa, look at that. And I love this because it's a dandelion, but instead of the little sprouts, whatever they are, or the biologists will tell me later what they are, uh, it's, it's little dollar bill, it's bills, right? And like, like this dandelion, right, that money is just going to go, whew. it's going to be gone, whether it's because God's taking you home or whether it's because it's just the way of the world and that's what happens to money. It seems to fly away. Remember this, Okay. God wants your life to be an oak tree, not a dandelion. He loves dandelions, but he's making you into an oak tree. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us in these areas of money to live for you? Please encourage us. Help us to release for you the things that you've given us. Father, help us, those of us who are filled with shame and those of us who feel inadequate to this task, to just be open and honest with each other. Thank you for Christ, who is our all in all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.